Hello, everyone. My name is Aaron Camp. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Fellowship, and it's my privilege to be preaching the word today. I don't have a lot more to say for introduction. I'm just excited to get into it. So uh, I'm going to begin by reading the entirety of today's passage from Jonah 2, and then we'll pray together to start things off. So please turn there if you have your Bibles. It'll be up on the screens as well, and you can read along with me. I'm actually going to start with verse 117 for context, and then the rest will be chapter 2. God's Word says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought upon my life from the pit. O oh Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Let's pray together and give this time to the Lord. Almighty Father, there are some wonderful truths about you in this prayer that we just read. Help us to see those this morning, even out of the mouth of this flawed prophet, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Holy Spirit, will you do that in our hearts today and amongst this people? We know we need your help to do this. So I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week, Pastor Jeremy walked us through the consequences of Jonah's actions of disobedience. We learned about the pagan sailors. Remember them? They represented multiple religions and cultures from around the world. And we saw how they responded to God's mercy with worship and sacrifice. In spite of Jonah's best efforts to fail at his mission, God continued to show mercy. We learned about God's plan to save Jonah from death by having literally a sea creature, a great fish, a whale, swallow him after he had been thrown into the sea. This is really one of those details that can't be passed over too quickly. In this era that we're talking about, there was no Coast Guard planes. There was no search helicopters. You didn't have any rescue boats going after people. Being cast into the sea was basically a death sentence. I mean, unless you're a few hundred yards from the shore, unless you're a really good swimmer and you had good weather, this was trouble. So the sending of the great fish is truly salvation from death. It's a big deal. 
And it's in that context that we find this prayer. Today, we want to look at Jonah's response to this act of God in saving him from certain death as we examine his prayer. And spoiler alert, Jonah still doesn't get it. Certainly not in the way that we'd want him to at this point in the story. But there's still much to learn from his prayer. How God mercifully deals with him and how he mercifully deals with us. So we're going to look at two responses to salvation for the remainder of the morning. The first being the response of Jonah to the Lord's salvation. We'll examine Jonah's prayer. And then I want to take some time to look at the response of God to those in need of salvation. But let's start at that first one, the response of Jonah to the Lord's salvation. We'll look at two observations within Jonah's prayer. I think they give us a really good sense of the nature of his response. In other words, Jonah responds to salvation with prayer, but how does he pray? We want to break down how he prays. In a way, I would characterize Jonah's prayer as an explanation to God as much as anything. Sure, it's a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer communicating Jonah's plight and the Lord's salvation. But as we'll see in a minute, there's something missing about this prayer. So the first observation we'll hone in on as we look at Jonah's response to the Lord's salvation is Jonah explains his need for salvation. This is found in verses 2 through 6. Jonah sets the context for his prayer by expressing his situation to God. And there's nothing actually that abnormal about this. In fact, the whole prayer reads a lot like a psalm, doesn't it? We see David do this exact same thing in many places throughout the book of Psalms. He expresses about his oppressors, his foes, his wounds, his fears, his failures. And he explains to God what is going on. David talks about the context of his woes in the surrounding nations in Psalm 2. And in the next verse, he talks about his foes. We see Jonah impulsively doing the same thing, an act of thanksgiving. His prayer is framed in lyrical format. It's a psalm of sorts. So we know what it is, but what's going on in his head? Why does he say it? Well, we learn that Jonah actually gets some things right here. He says truth. And in many ways, he begins to catch up with those pagan sailors who have already worshipped God and offered sacrifices to the true God. We see that Jonah affirms the sovereignty of God. We see that he acknowledges God's creator status. And Jonah even recognizes his inability to do anything about the situation that he's in. Listen to some of these phrases from verses 2 through 6. For you, God, cast me into the deep. Ultimately, Jonah sees that this is happening because God allowed it. It's affirming his sovereignty. All your waves and all your billows, the sea is God's possession. He is the creator. I'm driven away from your sight. Notice the passive language there suggesting God is the one driving Jonah away. I personally think that reeks of Jonah's lack of self-awareness, considering he's been running away from God. But there's something good to be said about it. He at least acknowledges that this is the Lord's discipline, right? 
And verses 5 and 6 I find particularly helpful for identifying that Jonah, at minimum, understood his plight and his need for salvation. He wasn't going to solve this on his own. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So it's evident that Jonah has some things right here. He's saying true things. But what is Jonah actually communicating? I believe that his prayer of thanksgiving is in earnest, but there's an essential part of the equation missing. This prayer is incomplete. What's missing? Repentance of any kind. Confession. We don't read a, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner, like we hear David say repeatedly throughout Psalms. We don't hear a, Lord, forgive me. We don't even hear a, my bad. When Jared and I were talking about this sermon series, he made a passing comment that I got to preach the confessionless prayer, and it just got my wheels turning, and that idea pressed in my mind, and I wanted to discover, is, is that what's going on here? So I read the prayer in that view, and I started digging into commentaries to see if others had seen this. And sure enough, like, Jonah says some true things here. He's clearly learned something. He's clearly thankful. But there's no sense of confession or repentance here or recognizing that he is part of the problem. He explains to God what is happening. He asks for help, that's good. He shows gratitude, and that's good. He even makes some theological assertions that are true. But I genuinely have trouble reading repentance here. And this may seem like a harsh reading of Jonah's prayer, I get that. But we have good reason to wonder about what he's thinking. The context of his previous actions of disobedience give us pause to be sure, but that's not it. There's actually more going on. According to literary expert Leland Riken, the main genre of Jonah as a book is satire. It's the exposure of human folly and of vice. It's an important thing for us to do today as we study the word to take genre into account. In satire, it's, it's not uncommon for the protagonist or the main character to be a fool, to be a bad guy. Or simply put, to be a negative example. It's one of the main ways that an author attacks the problem when they use satire is by having the main character embody the problem. We get into their thoughts. We see their actions. It's a little bit better than just saying this is bad when we get to see examples of it in the life of someone. And I'm not suggesting that this is, you know, not a historical account of Jonah and that he's just the embodiment of a problem. That's all he is as a character. He was a real prophet, and this is the account of his life. But my point instead right now is to show that the way the story is crafted and presented to us shapes the way that we should read it. We're supposed to see ways that we relate to Jonah, but we can't forget that we're ultimately supposed to see God's intentions and God's plans contrasted with Jonah's actions. And therefore, we have to look at Jonah's actions, his statements, his disobedience, even the claims he makes in a prayer 
with some suspicion. And we need to instead look at God's expectations, God's desires, and God's actions. So in light of that, we need to look at the second part of Jonah's prayer to get an understanding of how Jonah processed salvation. In verses 7 through 9, Jonah explains his rationale. We saw his need for salvation. We now see his rationale for salvation in 7 through 9. Listen again to these verses. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This last portion of Jonah's prayer, Jonah chooses to focus on his actions of prayer and its safe arrival to the throne room of God. And and that's not untrue. God hears his children. He loves to hear prayers of help from his children. But the context for these statements are interesting, right? Right? When my life was fainting away, then I remembered the Lord. A prophet of Israel, commissioned by God with a specific task, remembered prayer as an option, and all it took was nearly dying and the miraculous salvation of a great fish underwater. Next, he makes a claim surrounded by irony and lack of self-awareness. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And that's true. If at the end of a life, it's only been characterized by faith in something false, that's not good. That will not result in salvation. That will not result in the experience of redemption. But again, here, the prophet of Israel is catching up to the pagan sailors from before who worshipped when they were shown mercy. Remember the idol worshippers that were shown mercy and then turned to God? Doesn't that kind of betray Jonah's emphasis here? God overcame their vain idol worship by demonstrating his mercy to them. Not because they had everything figured out first. Their response to God's working was worship. Meanwhile, Jonah thinks his position and heritage, his actions and his promises to God are the things saving him or at least making him right before him. The ESV Literary Study Bible makes the comment that this was the most favorable light that we actually see Jonah in throughout this whole book. I think this is because he does say some true things here. He does get some things right. And it's right that he approaches God with thanksgiving. He's not demonstrating full-on rejection anymore, but we still get the sense that he doesn't get it. And yeah, it's easy to bash Jonah right now. I get that. In some ways, that's kind of the point of the book, is to look at Jonah as a means of contrast with God, to see man's failed and faulty understanding of mercy, and instead, to see God's provision of real mercy. But again, this book doesn't exist to explain an abstract idea about man's mercy and God's mercy. Or to tell an interesting story to keep us all plugged in for about 30 minutes. It's meant to show folly and wisdom to confront our hearts. When we see 
these bad responses by Jonah. We aren't meant to walk in another path of foolishness by becoming Pharisees. We don't want to fail in our own prayers to God by saying something like, thank you that I'm not like this Jonah, a sinner. Why? Because you and I aren't that different from Jonah. We may have a much less interesting story, (laughs) but we have the same temptations to identity-based, works-based, confessionless religion that he has. Even today, the impulse to define who the good guys are, what the in-crowd God's people look like and act like based on their outward characteristics, that's still a temptation. Those people over there are always the bad guys, the enemies. Good guys think like me and act like me and look like me. We're so good at building walls. We do it with race, with ethnicity, do it with our incomes. We do it with nationality. We do it with politics. We're really good at identifying the bad guys and wishing them the worst. And once your position is rooted in your personal identity and you being right, it's easy to see how it becomes a performance thing, isn't it? A matter of maintaining your position as the right one. Once you focused on, this is who I am, it's not a big jump to, this is what I do and this is what everyone should do. Here's a little heart check that I had to, that I had to do. I had to ask myself these questions too. How many times have you been in a rough spot, a struggle, and you try to make a wager with God? What do I have to do? God, if you get me out of this, I'll do X. How many times have you appealed to God with, look at what I've done for you? Have you ever thought, how could you do this to me? You know who I am? There's a real pride and arrogance in those thoughts. And I'm embarrassed to say that I've had them too. They're sadly familiar lanes for my heart. And we must turn and repent from those. Guys, this is us without help. That's what we do. This is us in the flesh without the Spirit. It's self-protection. It's self-preservation. It's a turning inward. What about Jonah's hard-heartedness and his lack of repentance? Do we ever do this? Jonah said in his prayer, you cast me into the deep. But he forgot to mention that the sailors actually cast him into the deep at his suggestion because he was purposely running from God. He just kind of missed that little detail. You see, when you fall into the lie that your identity and your actions are what save you or what make you right before God, you will not see the need for confession. You won't see the point of repentance. You don't see beyond the obvious, the self-preservation, the easy You will explain away your problems. You will twist your answers. You will turn inward and you may even do so while saying all the right things. 
Jonah certainly saw the need for physical salvation. And, and I believe that he expressed this in a genuine way. It was genuine gratitude for when it came. But as we'll see in later chapters, he still didn't understand the Lord's mercy in a meaningful way. And the need for salvation, a need for salvation that once is experienced, it extends beyond your own personal needs and looks outward. So we've seen Jonah's failure. We've seen the temptations we face to repeat this failure. And as usual, the antidote is not to try harder but to understand God's ways and his purposes and his provision of salvation. I think sometimes we forget the point of it all, don't we? Jonah was turned inward. He was locked into his own mind. He didn't understand that a true grasp of God's mercy and the experience of salvation is characterized by an outward-facing posture and a desire to see that very mercy that you've experienced experienced by those around us. That can happen to us too. We can forget it. So I want to take some time now to switch gears. We looked at the response of Jonah. We saw the response that we are tempted to and oftentimes fall into. Now I want to look at the response of the Lord to all who need salvation. Jonah, Nineveh, us, and the world. That's the category of people that need the Lord's salvation. So how does the Lord respond to our need? Well, God provides a way of salvation for all kinds of people. Not just the good, not just the in crowd. He provides a way for salvation for the loser, for the outsider, for the sick one. He's a doctor. He doesn't come for the ones that are well, he comes for the sick. He comes for the lost lamb, not the flock that's got it all together. We so often, I so often, like Jonah, I underappreciate, we misunderstand, we confine God's plan of salvation, don't we? But the Bible is full of testimony to God's type of salvation and his desire to see it go beyond one man and one family and one tribe and one nation to the whole world. So I just want to do a quick survey. In Genesis 17, we already see the global nature of God's plan. God makes this covenant with Abraham, and he says this, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, Abram, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." God goes on to say that this covenant of redemption made with Abraham is to Abraham's children as well. So let's rework that. If Abraham is the father of a multitude of nations, according to God, he will be that, and the promise of redemption, the covenant, and the blessings extend to Abraham's children, then what do we get? That means that the blessings and fulfillment of the redemptive promises, the covenant that God made with Abraham, will be experienced by his children a multitude of nations. It's right there in the beginning of Genesis. We see that the plan of redemption from the beginning has a global vision because God doesn't just talk about the children of Abraham as Israel. He talks about them as a multitude of nations. The identity of the redeemed is clear very early on. 
And that vision actually continues throughout redemptive history, beyond just the makeup of the people of God, beyond just the fact that lots of people who believe will be from all over the world, the expectation is actually that the testimony of the people of God, the testimony of that blessing is supposed to extend to the whole world from the people of God. We're part of this process. I want to read a very small portion of a very long list of passages that expose that this plan didn't change throughout, throughout the redemptive history. Jonah went against the plan. We want to go with God's plan, so we need to make sure that that's what it is. Here's more from Abraham. Genesis 28, 14. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. What about when Moses takes charge? Let's look in Exodus and see what we hear here. Exodus 9, 16. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed, where? In all the earth. Not amongst the people that you've gathered, but all the earth. How about Joshua 4.24? Now, Joshua's at the helm. Moses has died. Did something change? It says, he did this so that all the peoples of earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. How about David? Things have changed by that time. A lot has changed. We've got the establishment of a nation. We've got this king who represents so much of the messianic promises of Jesus. Did something change around David's time? Well, look at these psalms with me. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. That's a prophetic nature. That's a promise. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. And then in Psalm 96.3, this is a command actually, declare his glory to people like you, to people that think like you and look like you and act like you. It's not what we read here. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Okay, what about the prophets? Surely something changed in the prophets, right? It's mostly internal dialogue. He's, the prophets are oftentimes correcting Israel or focusing on some horrible thing that's going to happen to them. Well, let's see what Isaiah has to say. <laughs> Isaiah 40, verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I like that last phrase too, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When God speaks, things happen. Nothing stops it. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved. People of X ethnicity. People of Z background. Nope. It's not what it says. Turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. This makes it clear that the target of salvation, the experience of redemption, the embracing of mercy is to be all nations, all people. 
The pagan sailors may make up a fractional representation of God's plan to redeem a multitude of people from everywhere, but they weren't a side project. Nineveh's repentance wasn't a random excursion by God, but a pointed task for one of his prophets. We exist not only, but truly as God's people to testify to, to proclaim of, and to herald the good news of salvation to the world wherever we are, whenever we exist. It's not part of the plan of God. It is the plan. Worship God and seek more worshipers. Jesus is very clear about this. We often refer to it as the Great Commission. It's familiar for many of you, but in Matthew 28, the command of the Lord Jesus Christ says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, to Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is not the task of the professional missionary, the pastor, the old, the mature, the perfect Christian. This is the task of the redeemed. Those who have been shown mercy talk about mercy. It's so easy to view Christianity as a self-help project sometimes, isn't it? A personal project to become the best you. To use God to make a better you. And I don't want to denigrate the pursuit of purity or putting sin to death in your life. That's a good one. That's that's something we are called to do. Something we help each other with. Something as a church we do regularly. But when our faith becomes only about you, when it becomes disconnected and separate from this calling of Jesus to make him known among the nations, you begin to follow the path of Jonah. Your faith turns inward. It turns self-interested. It becomes possessive. This shows that our view of Christianity can be small. It can become insular. It becomes petty and turned inward. And we need a better place to look than Jonah as a solution. Now that we've been reminded about the nature of God's plan for redemption, that it has a global view, that it has a very outward-facing plan, we should look to that better example now. On this side of the cross, we have a better Jonah. He refers to the sign of Jonah. He talks about it, actually. In Matthew and Luke, Jesus draws a connection between himself and And Jonah, it's interesting. It's kind of tricky, actually. He refers to this sign of Jonah, and it's a calling to repentance, just as Jonah had to do. And it specifically mentions in Matthew Jonah's time in the belly of the sea. Belly of the sea creature. I mean, he was in the belly of the sea, but ultimately in the belly of the sea creature as a parallel and a prediction of his own experience to come. So Jesus draws a contrasting nature between Jonah and himself. Let's look at this contrast. We look at Jonah's prayer here. 
We see no confession or repentance, do we? There's really only one who could ever offer up a confessionless prayer, right? Only someone sinless could do that. Only one who could say he never failed in the task that he was commissioned to accomplish. Only one who was wrongly identified as the cause of God's judgment. Only one who was thrown off the boat unjustly, so to speak. Jonah says that the seaweed wrapped around his head when he was at the bottom of the ocean, but there was one who had a crown of thorns buried into his head. Jonah said he sunk to the roots of the mountains in darkness, but Jesus experienced the depths of the evil human heart. And where did it take him? It took him to the belly of the great fish, death, for three days and three nights. Jonah was saved from certain death. Jesus certainly experienced death on our behalf, and he was the only one who ever could. When he was raised on that cross, when he died, he took on the wrath of God that we deserved. He did not turn inwards. He did not seek his own self-preservation. His faithfulness to his Father and what the Bible refers to as God showing his love toward us was on full display when he died for us as his enemies. And his resurrection verified and guaranteed the full salvation of his people. Not just the physical salvation that we, like Jonah, are tempted to celebrate and to focus on. Save me from death. Save me from discomfort. Save me from struggles. Jesus dealt decisively with the second death for those that trust in him. Friends, your identity won't save you. Your good works, they have no chance. They won't save you. Salvation doesn't belong to you. One of the things Jonah nails, he says correctly, is salvation belongs to the Lord. And by God's grace, by his mercy, we are made aware that that is only found in Jesus Christ. For anyone here today who has held on to their own attempts for salvation or in some other person, some other thing, I just want to invite you to speak with me after the service. Speak with someone that you trust here at Hope. Speak with someone who brought you. We want to be a people that can communicate clearly God's mercy through Jesus Christ. And so we'd love to talk to you if that's you today. If you feel the pull of God today, I'd love to talk about that. For believers, for Hope Fellowship, I I think a major takeaway from this sermon, and there's many, I think a major takeaway from this sermon is just a recalibration of our commission. A reminder of the plan that God has begun and our part in it. I really think there's room for each of us to take some time to evaluate how much that great commission, that call to make Jesus known in our community and similar communities and to the ends of the earth, how much of that is part of our life in a meaningful way? 
we have to take this warning of Jonah's failure seriously. To, to go on examining foolishness without asking ourselves if we're partaking in the same foolishness, it's a death sentence. It's similar to being thrown off an ancient boat in the middle of the sea. My suspicion is that a careful evaluation of where we're at will lead to confession and repentance. My suspicion also is that there is a great desire from this people, from our church, to follow Jesus. So I would encourage sometime today, sometime this week, you you can start now while I'm talking. I don't mind. This is very important that we spend some time considering our part in God's merciful plan to see disciples made of all nations. I'm praying that it might become part of Hope Fellowship's identity in increasing ways. Not just to check evangelism or missions tasks off our checklist, but in a response to the mercy we've been shown. To make sure that we're not a little too turned inward. May we look to Jesus, the Savior who did not reluctantly preach repentance, but willingly provided mercy to sinners when they were enemies. Let's pray together. Almighty Father, will you forgive us for making life about us, for making our faith a tool to try to make us better or to look better. Help us to live lives not characterized by self-preservation, but lives like Jesus, characterized by sacrifice. Lord, we know we can't save anyone. We can't even save ourselves, no matter where we come from or what we do. Because salvation belongs to you. Will you please help us to willfully, with joy, with hearts that are able and ready to confess and repent our failures, to testify to your mercy to the world around us, not out of fear, not out of obligation, but because we love you and because you've shown your love to us. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.